pray with me. Father, we do it so often we forget the privilege that it is to gather in worship and to recenter, to refocus, to come back to the things of first importance. And so we invite you in this time now as we open your word and commence a new series. Father God, may your Holy Spirit be at work among us in these moments. May you speak to us. May you bring to our attention and to our hearts all that you want to communicate to us. Would you please remove any distraction mentally, uh, emotionally? Father, would you grant us grace? Still ourselves before you, to still ourselves before your word and to hear the things that you want to say to us. Lord, please uh, empower me as I speak and my brothers and sisters and friends as they listen and meet with us in this time we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are we doing here, 9.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning? Have you ever asked yourself that? There's a lot of other places you could be. <laughs> you'd be down the beach. It'd be a bit chilly this morning, admittedly. You'd be in the winery somewhere, somewhere in the Swan Valley. You could be at Bunnings with a whole heap of other people. <laughs> you could be at a cafe having brunch. Sounds pretty attractive. Apparently there's another three and a half million other Australians scattered around the nation who... Uh, this morning we'll be found in a church service like this, gathering. Why are they gathering in churches across the nation? And why are we here? Have you, have you ever asked yourself that question? Why? <laughs> you remember the story, I've told it before, of that, uh, it was the turn of last century apparently. And there was a, a Jewish rabbi in a Russian city and he found himself deeply disappointed by a lack of direction and purpose in life. He wandered out into the chilly evening, aimlessly walking through the empty streets, collar turned up, hands deep in his pockets, questioning his faith in God, his calling to ministry. The only thing colder apparently than the world and the wind outside was the chill inside his soul. And in his despair, he inadvertently wandered into a Russian military compound that was off-limits to civilians. The silence of the evening air was shattered by the bark of a Russian soldier. Who are you? What are you doing here? After a brief moment, uh, the rabbi, shocked, said, excuse me, and the soldier repeated his bark. Who are you? What are you doing here? It, it took a second, but the rabbi in a in a gracious tone, so as not to further evoke anger from the soldier, asked, how much do you get paid every day? What does that have to do with you, retorted the soldier. And the rabbi replied with a tone resembling that of someone who had just made a wonderful new discovery. He said, I will pay you the same amount if you ask me those same two questions every day who are you 
And what are you doing here? They're good questions, aren't they? You know, a few other passages in the scriptures have given Christians more clarity about our, our vision for who we are and what our purpose is here than this passage in Matthew 28. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, the, the 11 apostles, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is, uh, that is such a helpful passage. Those are our marching orders. Those are Jesus' final words in Matthew's Gospel, uh, following his crucifixion, resurrection, just prior to his ascension. Every word is vitally significant. Nothing is wasted there. So if we were to ask Jesus, who are we and what are we doing here? Um, I think in short... Those, those words tell us, and here's my attempt to capture it. Who are we, Morley Baptists? What are we doing here? Well, we are a group of people commissioned by the supreme authority of Jesus to be a reproducing, international, intergenerational community of disciples living in allegiance to Jesus. It's my attempt to summarize that. Who, who we are as a church. See, those verses, those words were spoken by Jesus following his death and resurrection, now that his authority had expanded to include all heaven and earth. All authority has been given to me, he said. And it was spoken to those um, 11 apostles, those first 11, who had already spent three odd years being discipled by Jesus. And now, prior to his ascension, he sends them out to do the same, to make disciples of others, to train others in allegiance to Jesus, to make disciples. And when they hit some cultural barrier, they are to build bridges across those barriers of language or of custom and they are to continue their work into every ethnic group across the planet. Go into all nations. It's, it's not to remain contained within their own generation. And Jesus envisaged that this would be a, a self-perpetuating movement of Jesus' followers who would continue to progress and to propagate themselves right up until the completion of this present age in which we live, to the very end of the age, he said. And he said that that whole process has a couple of very important stages, vital stages. There's an initial stage of confessing allegiance to Jesus Christ in an act, a public act of baptism, in the trifold name, the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there's this ongoing stage of teaching others to observe, obey, to, to practice, to, to embed into their lives the very things that Jesus had commanded 
those first 11 disciples. That provides a lot of clarity. A lot of clarity for us. Friends, that that is why we are here. That is who we are. We are a group of people commissioned by the supreme authority of Jesus to be a reproducing, international, intergenerational community of disciples living in allegiance to Jesus. So that answers a lot of questions, but it also begs some others. So notice this phrase in particular, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. These are our marching orders, Morley Baptist. We don't get an option on what we're here for. Jesus has given us that. This answers a lot, but it it begs some questions. And one question is, what was it that Jesus commanded those first apostles? What were the things that he told them that we are to keep on training others and teaching them to apply that? And that's where I believe we're meant to pause and look back through the Gospel of Matthew just to see what um, Jesus has commanded. And so when you do that, you discover that the Gospel of Matthew has been very deliberately arranged and ordered, not surprisingly. Do you remember what Matthew's profession was? He was a tax collector, right? A bean counter. So he is used to order and precision and accuracy and structure. And when you go back through the whole gospel of Matthew, this, that command of Jesus is right at the tail end. But you go back through and you see, oh, wow, this has very, been structured very deliberately. So there is an introduction, chapters 1 to 3. Jesus' birth and arrival, John the Baptist begins to herald Jesus. There is a conclusion, a culmination right at the end. Chapters 26 to 28, Jesus is arrested. He suffers execution by crucifixion. He is raised. But then you have a look at the, all of the meat between the sandwich, so to speak, and watch the way that Matthew has arranged his gospel. In each time, there is a, um, there's five teaching blocks, and it's all arranged around narrative and then a first teaching block. And then there's a structural marker, when Jesus had finished these sayings. Then it goes into more narrative, finishes with a teaching block, sending out the 12. There's another structural marker when jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples and it does that five times more narrative a teaching block parables another structural marker when jesus had finished these parables more narrative then a teaching block chapter uh, 18 and then when jesus had finished teaching his 12 then the final bit of a narrative a final teaching block and then the structural marker is when jesus had finished all these sayings Matthew has been so deliberate in giving us five teaching blocks. So when Jesus says at the end, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey, to live out all that I've commanded you, what do you think he's referring to? Any guesses? (laughs) Those five, Sermon on the Mount, sending out the twelve, parables, teaching the twelve, and temple, uh, and the end. Five teaching blocks deliberately placed through Matthew's gospel and then you get the culmination, go and be a self-perpetuating, reproducing, international, intergenerational community of disciples living in allegiance to Jesus, commissioned by the authority, the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. 
So, at Morley Baptist Church, that's exactly what we have been doing. So if you're new to Morley Baptist, we've actually been following these teaching blocks for the last three years. This is the fourth year in a row in Term 2 where we're going through this. So um, in 2020, it was all online, we looked at that first teaching block. Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We called it Kingdom 101. And this is where Jesus calls us to genuinely enter the domain of the kingdom. He wants you to enter that domain. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't even enter that, that kingdom of heaven. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Not everyone who comes to me on the last day and says, oh, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wants us to be a church that really enters, not just fakes it with some religious makeover. He wants us to be a group of people that have a change of heart and that actually enter into this domain of living under his kingship. That was what we looked at in 2020. 2021, we looked at the next teaching block. Uh, and chapters 8 and 9 lead up to it. Jesus is just displaying all of these demonstrations of his kingly authority over sickness, over demons, over creation. And then at the start of chapter 10, it's like he does a handball and he says to his 12 apostles, okay, now it's your turn. Now you're going to go and say what I've been saying. You're going to go and do what I've been doing. You've been watching me. Now you're going to do it. And he gives them authority to go in that. We called it kingdom mission. So he sends out the 12. Friends, Jesus wants us to be a church that goes, that gets out of our comfort zone, that is not insular but missional. And so he does this with his first apostles. He gives them a taster right up early in their whole experience of following Jesus. He wants this to set something of the pattern of what his church will be. And they get a taste of what it is to exercise the authority of Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom of God is near and seeing people healed, seeing demons rebuked, seeing God at work and encountering adversity. He wants us to be a church that goes, doesn't uh, draw the wagons, but it's actually a group of people that's reaching out. And he did this up early in a short-term mission trip with his disciples within safe parameters because he's showing them this is the DNA of his kingdom movement. It is an outward-focused, ever-expanding movement. That's what we looked at, 2021. Last year, 2022, we came to Matthew chapter 13, the parables. It's an amazing chapter because at, at this stage, the crowd has been gathering. It's just been electric. And so Jesus finds himself at Lake's Edge and the crowd is so uh, swamping him that he actually hops into a boat, steps out from Lake's Edge a little. All the crowd is standing around and Jesus begins to teach them, but he uses a most unusual form of teaching. He uses parables stories that are earthy that are just drawn from daily life but that give insight into heavenly realities we called it kingdom stories kingdom secrets actually i think we did because all the all the crowd heard 
was just stories. Oh, there's a sower went out to sow, you know. Oh, there's some weeds among the wheat. But the disciples actually start to, to lean in and go, what, what, did you, what did you mean by that? Can you explain that to us? And so Jesus takes the disciples and he says, Oh, blessed are your eyes, for they see. To you it has been given, he says to the disciples, to know the secrets of the kingdom, the mysteries, truths that were previously not known, but have now been divinely revealed. You're getting insight information. The, the key word was deeper. See, Jesus wants us as a church not just to loiter at the shallows of understanding his word and his program. He calls us to go deeper. Does anybody want to do that? Do you want to be a group of people that actually really jump into understanding what is God doing in the world? What does he want to accomplish among us? So this is what we've been going through. Do you see, church, we are doing, get this, exactly what Jesus called us to do. By following through these teaching blocks, you're actually learning, I hope, <laughs> you're actually learning to apply and, and in flesh and live out the teaching that Jesus has commanded. And guess what? It's not so that you'll just get fat heads and go, oh, wow, don't I know all this stuff? You know why we're going through this? It's so that you can teach others. So that you can disciple others. So if there's a friend that becomes a Christian and they say, hey, what gives? How do you, how do you be a, a follower of Jesus? You can say, well, let me, let me show you something. This is what you do. This is the teaching of Jesus. We're to enter, genuinely enter the domain of the kingdom. We are to wholeheartedly engage with the mission of the kingdom. We are to deeply explore the secrets of the kingdom. That's, that's what all of this series is intended for. Now, there's something else here. Each of the uh, intervening sections prior to those teaching blocks is really important and it sets up for each teaching block. So chapters 3 and 4 sets up for the Sermon on the Mount. Um, John the Baptist and Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What is it? Well, you get to understand in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is displaying kingdom authority and then it sets up for him delegating that authority. Likewise, uh, 10 through to 12 sets up for the parables. Well, for this next series, the intervening section is vitally important. So from the end of the parables until the start of this fourth teaching section, so significant. I've been reading and studying this through the week. Chapter 13, you see, was a, a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry and in Matthew's gospel. Prior to chapter 13, the crowds had been gathering, flocking around Jesus like corellas around a waterhole. The kingdom, as he announced it and displayed it, was electric. But in chapter 13, it flicks and the crowds start to dissipate and Jesus begins to do more work with the 12. And so in this section, he actually uh, gives concentrated investment into the lives of his followers. And he is deliberately 
teaching them, spending more time with them. There'll still be some public ministry. There'll be, still be some personal encounters. There's always a bit of argy-bargy with the religious establishment. But by and large, predominantly, Jesus is now devoting his attention to the 12. And you can see it. What was previously uh, a public ministry now becomes primarily a private ministry. You can see it in the way that these chapters are arranged. Um, it, it's all sort of introduced geographically. It's like a real estate agent. You know, location, location, location is the way these chapters uh, sort of introduce each story. Each story seems prefaced by Jesus was in this area, Jesus was in that area. And it's all up north. So Jerusalem is right down south. But in this section, prior to the fourth teaching block, it's all around Jesus' hometown. He gets rejected by his hometown. He goes and feeds them and then crosses the water. Uh, he goes up to Tyre and Sidon. He's ministering around the Sea of Galilee. He takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. Goes down to, up to Mount Hermon. There's a Mount of Transfiguration. He's ministering at Capernaum. And all of it is up there. It's like he's just going, hold, hold, hold. He's trying to get his 12 and take them away from the crowd and invest in them without the interruptions of the crowd. Now, there'll still be some crowds. He'll still feed uh, 5,000 blokes plus women and children from a little boy's lunchbox. And he does it twice, not only for 5,000, then for 4,000, just in case you didn't get it the first time. But there's this concentrated investment into the lives of his disciples, away from the crowd. Do you want that? I found myself reading this thinking, oh, Lord, I, I want to have that time where I can just soak up your investment, your ministry and input. Don't be surprised if Jesus does that for some of you, where you feel like he takes you out of public circles and spheres and you just feel like he's ministering into you. He's getting you ready for something more. He's wanting to invest in you. So this whole section, it's just like he's going, hold, hold, hold. He's keeping them up north. And then, chapter 19, verse 1, he then heads south to Jerusalem. He has an appointment with destiny, and you know that destination in Jerusalem and what would unfold. But this whole section is up there. And so we come to the fourth teaching block. Oh, sorry, I should, I should tell you this. During that time, very profound things happen. In that intervening section. One of them is, while, the, uh, while Jesus takes them for a road trip up north, this occurs. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, about 50 k's north of, of the Lake uh, Galilee. And he asks his disciples, he gives them a pop quiz. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, well, this is the public opinion poll about you. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he puts them on the map. He says to them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter, like the leader of the, of the group, who blurts out, you are the Christ, the Christos, the anointed king, the son of the living God. And get this. This is what Jesus says to him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. That was his dad's name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petros. You're a small stone that can be taken with one hand and thrown. But on this Petra, 
on this quarry-like granite slab of a foundation, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you, singular, Peter, I will give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in, in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Peter gets some authority uniquely to uh, withhold or to release people into the kingdom. And you see him doing that in Acts. He's the one who preaches. He's using the keys and crowds come flowing into the kingdom. Very significant passage. Very significant. It's the first time Jesus mentions church in the whole gospel account. Peter's just confessed Jesus as king. Jesus says that his church has an unshakable foundation upon this rock of his confessed kingship. He's going to build it. It it will have an unstoppable expansion. He will build his church. Not might. He will. That's a promise, not a maybe. He will do it. And it's his church, not our church. He says here that the church will experience undefeatable progress. That even in the face of the gates of Hades, that that abode of the dead, even that place of death and darkness will not be able to withstand the, the, um, the advancing power of the church that Jesus is going to build. Peter gets those keys to open up the kingdom. And then a few days after this, Jesus takes Peter, James and John up that uh, one of those peaks on Mount Hermon and he just shows his inner brilliance. He just shines in glory. This is a view of the king, all right. This is what's happening in the intervening section. And that's what then brings us to the fourth teaching block. The fourth teaching block, Matthew 18... Jesus is going to start teaching the 12 about what the kingdom is like on the inside. See, number two and number four mirror each other. Number two, the kingdom has an outward focus. We're to go out. Number four, what's the kingdom like on the inside? Jesus is going to start to explain some of the revolutionary, countercultural, upside-down values and dynamics that are at work within the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. So now we come to Matthew 18. And it's right here that I discover I have a problem. (laughs) Because as I've uh, been reading through commentators and getting ready to preach on Matthew 18 fills me with all the excitement of a teenager being forced to go visit a great aunt. You know what I mean? Because the commentators say it's just about relationships in church. Ho-hum. Maybe it's because I've been at this since 1989 as a young pastor, green around the gills... (laughs) Green behind the years, probably was green around the gills too. 23 years old that year. 
So I've been at this now for around 35 years and I've probably seen enough to grow a bit cynical, I'll admit that. I'm in my mid-50s, about to turn 57. I've got eight more years before I hit the infamous 65. And I want to make it count. But what I'm registering is I've reached saturation level with the insignificant in church life. I've actually reached the point of being fed up with the inconsequential. And the, Listen, the majority of animated discussions I've seen in the last 35 years around churches, the majority of times when I've seen churches really get animated, it's around um, the volume of the drums or the choice of songs or the colour of carpet or the choice of coffee or whether, you know, youth wear flip-flops into church or not, or, or, or baseball caps, and you just think, really? You know, it, is, that, is that what my job has become? Just sort of getting people within the church to behave nicely. <laughs> and maybe that's what I'm tired of too, is, is just having to be nice. I know it's sort of part of the job description, Kind of, you know, to be gracious, but nice? Oh, Paul, he's such a nice guy. Jesus wasn't nice. Do you know that? He was forthright. He'd get invited to meals at places and he would deliberately offend the host and there'd be a walk-by woman of the night that he'd really commend. Man, did he get into hot water about that. See, I, I think what I've got sick of is the way that by and large over these last 35 odd years the most animated conversations and discussions center around things that just do not count they don't matter not in the light of eternity and often it feels like like if this series is just about getting you to play nicely if my job is just about getting the usual suspects not to misbehave and to play well together, you know, Barlees. Meanwhile, the, the neighbourhood and the nation remains largely unreached. And churches sometimes feels like we're just sort of playing the game while outside our doors people are dying. And I share this with you, A, because it's cheaper than therapy, but <laughs> B, because I think you get fed up with this too. I think you as a church have also reached that saturation point with the insignificant and the inconsequential and the petty and the squabbles about things that just don't matter. I think you know that we were created for more than this. I think you sense, yes, but why are we arguing? I'm, most church members meeting, really, I mean, you guys are an exception. I have to get you to talk. That's the challenge here. Other church members meetings, wow, the most inane issues. How did we do this? How did we... Get to this place where you just drop in the unadorned word church 
and people just shrug their shoulders, you know? How did that happen? How have we robbed the church of all of its sense of danger and risk and we've turned it into something insipid and inane and anemic and domesticated and safe? We're always talking about safe church. Yes, I believe it, okay? But I think Jesus would talk about dangerous church. See, because we know that we were created and called for something greater. And this level of boredom that we register in us about the insignificant, it reaches levels that just cannot be abided. We know that we were called to be involved in greater things because all the while that we're arguing about stuff that doesn't really matter, there is a world stage playing out of unprecedented levels of volatility. We've got aggressive secularism that just keeps pushing forward. A secularism, by the way, that has absolutely no substance in it to commend itself. It's completely devoid. It will not provide any sense of meaning or purpose. But that's what we've got pumping out through our media. Meanwhile, on the world stage, we've got these arrogant little tyrants just having their power trips, trying to promote their kingdom. A kingdom, by the way, that will be but a vapour. Those tyrants will not be on the planet in 50 years, 70 years. They will not. So is there any time in all of church history where the church needs to be the church more than now? See, this is the time when the church needs to rise up and be what Jesus has called the church to be. There needs to be people who pray for the power of God to fall practice acts of courage and kindness to a world that's groaning and people who are marginalized and impoverished that proclaim a life-changing message and we know it we know that there is something within us that was created to participate in things that matter supernaturally charged eternally significant and there's this disconnect we experience We're like lions engaged in a mouse hunt. We're like wedge-tailed eagles pecking for scraps in a chook pen. When we were created to roar and we were created to soar, we are like warriors whiling away our days playing marbles. We've turned church into something as invigorating as a bingo game in an old age time. You know, a, a, a tea party for the senile. When Jesus actually talks about church in a way that is meant to inspire wholehearted, wholehearted involvement and engagement. And I think, I think the problem is that we have left out an essential context. See, when Jesus spoke of church, he spoke of church in the context of kingdom. And kingdom, my friends, is war. Kingdom is God's power poised at the borders of earth, breaking into hostile territory and bringing a beautiful new era. We talk a lot about church and very little about kingdom. Jesus spoke a lot about kingdom and very little about church. We talk about church and people just shrug their shoulders, ho hum and walk off to find something more interesting. Jesus spoke about kingdom and people 
were mesmerized. They were captivated. They would spend hours just sitting and listening to Jesus. Men would leave their businesses and go follow this man. Women would tag along with that group too and empty their bank accounts to bankroll this itinerant preacher and this ragtag team who followed him along. See, there's something about kingdom that we need to rediscover because that is what charges our understanding of church with a sense of the significant. The whole context of Jesus talking about church is kingdom. And kingdom is what we were created to participate in. That is what we want. Young people, that is what we want for you. Young adults, we do not want to bequeath to you something as engaging as a tame tea party. We want you to be captivated by the wonder of Jesus and his global purposes. We want you, young adults, to see people coming to Christ one after the other. Five people just in six months and just out of your class. We want you to have prayer times that edge way past midnight because God's just come up and and you've just started to pray because you're sensing the power and the presence of God. We want you, young adults, to be people instead of chasing Uh, thrills in a nightclub or a pub actually discover that this is what you were made for and when you worship you just are awash with tears unashamedly because the reality of Jesus has come among you and started to walk in your midst that is what we want to see friends the, the word I think we need to put in front of church to actually redefine it and bring it back to what Jesus first meant was that we're to be a kingdom church. That's what he intends. That's what he was bringing into being here. In chapter 18, he just takes an inside look at this kingdom church, this kingdom community, and it is meant to be startlingly beautiful, so different from any other group. And so when we do get awakened and aroused and recognised, Oh, wow, we actually need to give our life and being in service of the king and his kingdom purposes in the world. Then there can actually be, it's not unusual, another haunting question that besets us. And it's the, it's the question, it's the issue of being apprehensive. It's sort of questioning, can we do it? Are we actually up to this assignment? Can we actually make disciples of all nations? Friends, that's where I want to remind you of what we've already spoken about this morning. Because the answer, can we do it? The answer to that is, simultaneously and unequivocally, no and yes. No, we can't do it in and of ourselves. And yes, in Christ, we absolutely can. So can I remind you of what Jesus has already said that we've looked at this morning? He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's by his authority that we are commissioned. That he has promised he will build his church. That's what's backing our endeavours. That his church, his kingdom church, will be undefeatable in the face of death. And that he will be with us all the way through to the end of the age. So yes, we can step up to this. 
by the grace of God secured for us through Christ under his supreme authority with his promise backing us with his presence with his message by his spirit we can actually engage in the kingdom assignment of making disciples of the nations and friends that's what I call you to to arise and to participate in Jesus's kingdom church that's what I'm calling you to this term that's what Jared and I will be seeking to bring out from Jesus's teaching that this is an inside look to the most countercultural revolutionary group you could ever find on planet earth that we are part of his kingdom and we do it as a church a local church and friends we're going to be looking at embracing this upside down community of the kingdom that's engaged in Jesus' kingdom mission. Listen to me. If you, have, if you have never left your ambitions behind and enlisted with Jesus to say, how can I serve your kingdom purposes? That is precisely what Jesus is calling you to do today. He is calling you to lay down every other ambition and me and to give our best life and energies and all that we can bring to serve his purposes. And as we do that, there will be a camaraderie as we embody his values. There will be a camaraderie among his kingdom church that will be absolutely beautiful. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this term. Okay? <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. Let's pray. Mm. I wonder. I wonder what's being stirred in your heart even now. What's settling in you? Even this morning, as you've heard that. Is there something that King Jesus is saying to you this morning? Is there a response that you're needing to make to him? You may be here this morning and you have never actually taken that first step of saying sorry to God and placing your trust in Jesus. Jesus is calling you to take that step this morning to give your life and to lay it down for Jesus and to trust him, to forgive you, to wrap you up into something eternally significant. You can take that step. Hey, you may be here this morning and you know there is something about Jesus' kingdom purposes that you need to refocus on, that you've been distracted by lesser things and that you need to say, yes, I want to rise, I want to participate, I want to stand up, and I want to be part of what Jesus is building, a kingdom church that's going to take the gospel to the nations. Father God, I pray that you would do a work among us as a church. 
And I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for the people you've gathered right here under your kingship. I, I thank you that you have bequeathed to us an assignment, a commission that has not been lifted. Your authority has not dissipated. Your promise has not begun to break down. Your presence has not become absent. Father God, I thank you that we are a local church here under the authority of King Jesus with your promise that you'll build and work through us and that you will continue to work through us until the end of this age. Father God, I pray that we will be a people that wholeheartedly say yes to being involved in your kingdom purposes that embody this upside-down kingdom community. We would experience what it is to be your kingdom church on mission in this world. So we pray for your blessing upon us as a church. We pray that you will do a work even this term, that there will be teaching that just and, and ministry that just fires our heart's commitment to stand up and serve, to lay down our lives. Father God, would you lead us, even this morning, I pray, as we sing. Lead us in making our response to your invitation, to your summons. In Jesus' name we ask it.